Today is a day characteristically referred to in broader Christian culture as Palm Sunday. It's intended to memorialize the day when Jesus Christ entered into the city of Jerusalem for the final time before his death. His followers surrounded him, shouting, Hosanna, a cry recognizing that he was the king, the the promised king of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They laid palms down in front of him as he went through the entrance to the city on a donkey, a sign of peacetime, and thus reflecting him to be that prince of peace that God said would come. This is often called the triumphal entry, and it marks, as I said, the final time where there is not just him entering into Jerusalem, but the final corporate acknowledgement of Jesus Christ's purpose and his authority prior to his death. As we transition our hearts into this season, as I mentioned uh, before, we're going to consider three, uh, really in three stages, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to talk about the history of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to teach the account. That's why you're in Matthew 27. Next week, we're going to talk about why it matters so much. And that's where we're going to get to the heart of the matter as it relates to mankind and sin and the need for Christ, his death and his resurrection. Then the week following is really when we're going to focus in on the power of the resurrection for us today where we're going to take the the power, uh, our understanding of the resurrection, our understanding of what it means when we accept Jesus Christ by grace through faith, by by accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then living in that power on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, realized basis. So we're talking history today. Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem in the days prior to the Passover, which is his stated purpose for being there. It was required in the law of Moses that the men of Israel would three times go to the temple for feasts. The first one of these was the Passover, the second Pentecost, and the third one would be the Feast of Tabernacles. All three of these were required by law, and Jesus, in submission to the law, as he lived in submission to the law throughout his entire ministry, arrives in the city for the Passover. And he charges two of his disciples, Peter and John, He commissions them to find or or to go to the place that Jesus had chosen to prepare the Passover meal. And indeed, they do so. So they go, they find an upper room, and they prepare in that upper room the Passover, this final Passover. It is here that Jesus, during this final Passover, institutes the ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. It is here that Satan fills the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, and Judas departs from out of that upper room with the purpose of betraying Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus then departs from that upper room, and his disciples go with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, which was outside of the city uh, on the Mount of Olives. Here Jesus would separate from the twelve, and he would take his inner three, Peter, James, and John, deeper into the garden, And then he would leave them and he would go off alone and he would spend hours in prayer. As he's doing this, Peter, James, and John, they fall asleep. They uh, are uh, called and, and exhorted by Christ to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. They failed 
at that task. And eventually, Jesus would wake them up and Judas would come, betraying our Lord into the hands of sinners with a kiss. They arrest Jesus and they bring him that evening before the Jewish council and the high priest. Their goal here is not to get information. It is indeed something like a tribunal, but they are not actually seeking information. Their goal is to see Jesus killed. It's a a setup. They're attempting to railroad him and they are seeking to find the means by which to commend him to Rome to be killed. This is important because they were not allowed to put Jesus to death themselves. They were under Roman authority. They had authority, but they did not have the authority to mete out the death penalty. So they had to have the approval of the Roman officials in order for the death penalty to be meted out, and that was their goal. To that end, it was all but inevitable that they found Jesus guilty. We pick up then, after this sham trial before the high priest, the next morning, excuse me, when they commend Jesus to Pontius Pilate to be tried by the Roman officials. And we pick up in Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says this. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So morning has come. They delivered Jesus to the governor, Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. We read then in verses 3 through 10. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, that Jesus was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. So Judas repents of his betrayal, the Bible says, acknowledging Jesus to be an innocent man, and he goes before the priests and the rulers, and he says, that, he says as much. The princes and rulers, the priests and the rulers, excuse me, naturally have no concern about this themselves. They do not care about Judas's feelings. They do not care about his motivations. They do not care that he thinks that he did the wrong thing. What's done is done. Their, their purposes had been accomplished, and he was a tool through which they had been able to accomplish those purposes. Judas, however, disgusted by his own actions, took the 30 pieces of silver that they had paid him in order to betray Jesus, and he cast them down in the temple, and then he went out and he hanged himself in a field there in Jerusalem. Now the priests, maintaining a tireless devotion to the traditions which had become their gods, knew it was unlawful that the money should be added to the treasury because that money was, was uh, intended to perform an evil act. It is ironic that they would be willing to put Jesus to death. It is ironic that they would be willing to lie and scheme and deceive in order to murder a man. 
but that they would have a fit of conscience about allowing the money that they paid in order to bring this about to go into the temple. This is a, another indication of their skewed morality, whereby they did not actually follow the voice of the true and living God, but rather had taken the law of God and had actually made the law itself their God and the traditions of the elders, and thus molded a God in their image. This is idolatry. So instead of putting that money into the treasury in the temple, they purchased a field, the field where Judas had been killed, and they chose to use that field in the future in order to bury the bodies of those who had died in the land, probably particularly those who died in Jerusalem, but who were foreigners, who were strangers. They would not be allowed to be, um, they would not go back to their families. They would not be allowed to have a Jewish burial. And so this would be a field for strangers to be buried in, an unconsecrated field there in Jerusalem. And Matthew cites Jeremiah, said here, Jeremy the prophet, and a prophetic, um, a, a prophecy that is realized here, ascribed to Jeremiah, cited in verses 9 and 10, which says, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom the, they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Now, this creates a little bit of a problem for us. If you were to follow, if you have a Bible that has cross-references, and you were to follow the cross-reference for this particular passage, the majority of you probably have a cross-reference not in Jeremiah, but in Zechariah. As a matter of fact, the verses you have are Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, which say this, And I said unto them, if you think good, give me the price, and if not, forbear, so they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them into, uh, to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now this is the cross-reference, the primary cross-reference that we find in Matthew 27. And this is interesting to us because this is not Jeremiah writing. Zechariah was not written by Jeremiah the prophet. So what do we do with this? Well, there's a couple of different explanations. Naturally, those that are outside of orthodoxy say, see, there's an error in your Bibles. There's not an error in our Bibles. When we come to a passage of Scripture where there is a discrepancy and we're struggling to understand it, knowing that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Knowing this to be true, we know that when there is a problem with our understanding, the problem is not with the Word of God, the problem is with us. On top of this, we understand that Matthew was a well-versed man. And we find that in nearly every version that, that, that we have of the Scriptures, of Matthew's New Testament Gospel, it maintains the name Jeremiah. There's a lot of people's eyes that went over this. And nobody said, why is he ascribing it to Jeremiah? Which means it's a problem with our understanding, not a problem with the scriptures. We know this to be true. Some believe that, that Jeremiah's name was used because um, when we look at the Talmud, 
Jeremiah is the first prophet listed there. And so many people say, well, Matthew just used Jeremiah as a representation of the prophets. He wasn't specifically seeking to cite the actual prophet that wrote these things, but rather just the prophets themselves. And as Jeremiah was the first prophet listed in the Talmud, that, that Jeremiah was the prophet's name or was the name that was listed. Once again, I don't really like that explanation, but some do believe that. I believe the most likely answer here is that, as, we'll see in, as we can see in other passages of Scripture, what's going on is that Matthew is linking Jeremiah to the beginning of a prophetic line of prophecies that is most clearly seen in Zechariah's quotation here, but which actually begins in Jeremiah. Let me explain. In Zechariah, he's speaking of a potter and of buying a field and of the weighing of 30 pieces of silver, which are cast to the potter in the house of the Lord. But Jeremiah spoke of a potter also, didn't he? In Jeremiah 18, he goes down to the potter's house. And at the potter's house in Jeremiah 18, he sees a potter make a vessel. And this... Vessel is marred in the hand of the potter. And in the next chapter, Jeremiah is called by God to take the potter's vessel and to go into the valley of Hinnom. And in the valley of Hinnom, he was to preach a message to those that were there. And then he was to take that vessel and he was to break it, effectively saying that because of the rebellion of the people, because of their evil, they would have consequences. They would go into captivity. That, that, that the vessel of God that, that God had made of them would be broken in pieces. It seems very likely here that Matthew considers Zechariah's prophecy that we read about in Zechariah 11, speaking of the potter and this field and the weighing of the money for this field and casting it before the potter in the temple to be a natural extension of the same prophetic context as Jeremiah. So it would look something like this. In Jeremiah, the prophet breaks the potter's vessel as a sign of destruction for rebellion. In Zechariah, things get more specific. Zechariah weighing 30 pieces of silver, casting them unto the potter in the house of the Lord as a sign that God has resigned the rebellious unto death. And then, of course, in Matthew, we see Judas, the son of perdition, destroyed by his own rebellion, casting the 30 pieces of silver down in the temple for his betrayal and then hanging himself in the potter's field. And so it seems likely to me that what Matthew was doing here is that he was tracing the roots or the context of this prophecy from Judas back to Zechariah, but then also bringing it all the way back to the initial uh, prophecies of rebellion and destruction as it related to the potter's house in Jeremiah. And in order to signify that he was doing that, though he had no particular verse to quote in Jeremiah, because Jeremiah didn't speak directly to it, he's showing us the lineage or the, the prophetic context, tracing that line of context from Jeremiah through Zechariah to Matthew. This is the best explanation that I have for this, thus giving credit to Jeremiah for the beginning of this prophetic context, these prophetic utterances that are fully realized in Judas's betrayal. Uh, if you don't <clears throat> like that explanation, that's fine. Um, it's just 
what seems to me to be most natural, uh, I, um, I fully admit that that, uh, that may not be the case. That being said, this is not the only time that we would see such a thing in the Word of God. We see a very similar instance in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where Mark quotes from both Isaiah and Malachi, but he only ascribes credit to Isaiah, recognizing that the Isaiah prophecy was continued or heightened. The context of Isaiah's prophecy is continued in Malachi and then realized in the Gospels, but he doesn't say both Isaiah and Malachi. He only ascribes credit to Isaiah. So this would not necessarily be an uncommon thing for the Gospel writers to do to see a link or a chain of prophecies, but to ascribe credit only to the major prophet or only to the prophet who actually initiated the, the, the prophetic context. So following Matthew's account of Judas's death, as we find it here in Matthew 27, he turns his attention back to Jesus himself. Matthew skips some events that we find in Luke. We find that Pilate, hearing that... Um, Jesus is a Galilean, sends Jesus off to Herod, and Herod speaks to him for a little bit, finds no fault in him, and then sends him back to Pilate. And we do pick back up with Pilate directly in Matthew, where we read beginning in verse uh, 11 of Matthew 27, and Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Jesus is being questioned by Pilate, and he does not respond. He does not seek to defend himself. In this, Jesus fulfilled the greatest of messianic prophecies found in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Much to the rather, Jesus did as is described in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, that he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus became an example to all who would follow in his footsteps. Jesus would not revile when he was reviled. Jesus would not seek vengeance upon those who, who came against him, but rather committed himself to the righteous judge, to God the Father. The governor marveled at these events. He marveled that Jesus would not defend himself, probably and primarily because the charges against him were so frivolous. And Pilate knows this to be true. We'll see that in just a moment. That Pilate understands through his political savvy, he's not a new He's not new to this. He's been around the block. He knows that this is frivolous. He knows that the reasons why the Jews have brought these charges against him and are seeking to levy the death death penalty against him are unfounded. And to this end, he marvels that this man who's standing before him refuses to defend himself. So we read in verses 15 through 19. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a noble prisoner, or notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, 
or Jesus, which is called Christ. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. So Pilate is a politically savvy guy. He understands that for envy, Jesus had been delivered unto him. He understands that it is the rulers that are conjuring up in themselves this sham trial in order to put to death a man that does not deserve it. And then he also had a dream given to his wife who who, um, exhorted him to have nothing to do with Jesus, calling him a just man, confirming to Pilate that this man had done nothing worthy of death. John 19 verse 12 tells us that Pilate was actively seeking at this point for a way to release Jesus. He had to be careful. He had to walk a fine line here because he did not want the leaders of the Jews to get riled up and then cause riots or insurrections or anything of the sort. He needed to keep the people calm. But simultaneously, he knew that this was something that was unjust. So the method that he chose to try to bring about a circumstance whereby Jesus would be delivered from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, from the scribes and the priests, was to choose Jesus as the possible malefactor whom they would have the government release. This was something that they did at the Passover every year as a celebration of the Jewish feast day. The Roman government would allow the Jews to pick a person to release from uh, from a government hold. Uh, it would not be uncommon, particularly the Jews were under the thumb of the Roman government, but they were not um, Roman citizens. So it would not be uncommon for the, for the Roman government to be holding someone for something and that the Jewish people were very upset over this. They did not want uh, uh, one of their own held. Uh, maybe it was an unjust circumstance, uh, whatever it might be. And so the Roman government gave them this once a year opportunity to have somebody released at the Passover as a way of, as it were, celebrating the Passover event. And so Pilate says, do you want to release Jesus or do you want to release Barabbas? Now, we know from the other Gospels that Barabbas was both a thief and a murderer. So most likely, Pilate would have thought, well, when you have the choice between Jesus, who's truly done nothing wrong, and Barabbas, who is a thief and a murderer, the people would most certainly want to release Jesus. This is Pilate's attempt to bring that about. However... This does not end up happening. We read in verses 20 to 26. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate washes his hands of the situation, as it were. He says, 
The blood of this just man will not be on my hands. You take care of it. The Jews assume responsibility, say his blood will be on our heads. His blood will be on the heads of our children. And then he released Barabbas as he said he would do and gives them Jesus to scourge and to crucify. We read about this in verses 27 to 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vestures did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation, written, This is the king of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders saying, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Such was the scorn and derision laid upon our Savior, the Savior of the world on that day. As he suffered for their sin, they mocked him. As he suffered for their shame, they added to him the indignity of their curses. In doing so, Christ again fulfilled the essence of Isaiah 53.3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This verse is a, a quotation. The we there being the future generations of Israel who would consider and who would consider well at some point, who would look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. And this verse is, is quoting that very thing, reminding us of what will be said one day by the people of God. But on this day, so many years ago, Jesus was there despised. He was there rejected. They esteemed him not. And so we see Jesus suffering this indignity, suffering this pain, knowing the cross to be a very cruel form of punishment. 
But that was not the real sorrow of this day. That was not the real anguish of the cross. That began. As we see, continuing in verse 45 and 46 of Matthew 27, beginning at the sixth hour, the Bible says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We've mentioned this on any number of occasions in the past. This is the only time throughout the life and ministry of Jesus Christ where Jesus refers to God the Father as God rather than my Father. Jesus acknowledges in this point that his relationship has changed between God the Father and himself from one of God as his Father to God as his judge. Realizing the promise again of Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. What Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 as we quote so many times, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ was made sin for us. He bore our sin on the cross. He took upon himself God's wrath. He took upon himself our spiritual separation that we might take upon ourselves his righteousness by grace through faith. This is one of seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Matthew only records this one saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As we look at the various Gospels and we combine them together, his first saying we read about in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Then in Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Verily I say unto thee that today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The next saying in John 19, verses 26 and 27, Jesus looks down at the cross and sees his mother and sees John, the evangelist. And he says to his mother, woman, and he points to John or looks at John and says, thy son, behold thy son. And then to John, behold thy mother, effectively yielding his responsibility as the eldest son to John, the evangelist, to take care of his mother. The next saying is the one that we read here. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the weight of our sin is placed on Christ and there's a separation between the Father and the Son for the first time in the history of history. The next saying we read about in John 19.28 where our Savior says, I thirst. Then in verse 30, he cries out, it is finished. And then in Luke 23.46, his final words before giving up the ghost. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Of those seven statements, we have, of course, considered the one in Matthew, but I'd like us to consider those last two just a little bit more. Following Christ's declaration, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
an acknowledgement of the judgment of God being poured upon him, the judicial relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus then declares, it is finished. The work is done. Propitiation. Wrath has been appeased. The satisfaction of, uh, of our sin was purchased. So that Christ's final words, recorded in Luke 23, 46, we see again the relationship where he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The relationship restored, the Trinity reunited, the work has been accomplished, and then commending his spirit to the Father, he yields the ghost. We continue then reading in Matthew 27. Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So Jesus gives his life. Now, the remainder of chapter 27 tells us of a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And he petitions for the body of Jesus. And then upon receiving the body of Jesus after it had been brought down from the cross, he wraps it in a clean linen cloth and he places it in his new tomb in which no man had ever been laid, hewn out of a rock. He took a great stone and he rolled it in front of the door of the tomb and sealed the tomb of the sepulcher. The Pharisees, knowing that Jesus had said that he would arise on the third day, petitioned the government to give a round-the-clock guard to the tomb, lest the disciples would come in the night and would take his body away, and then they could say that he rose from the dead. That petition is granted, and there are guards that are placed in front of the tomb, military men. So the body of Jesus rested in the tomb. We pick up in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became his dead men. They, they passed out. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests, all the things that were done, the watch being those that were guarding the tomb. 
And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Because if it came to the governor's ears, they could be killed for that, for that lie. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus arises from the dead. The tomb is empty. Jesus' body never found, for indeed it has ascended into heaven. Seen of men alive by the testimony of Apostle Paul, over 500 at one time saw him when they gathered together in Galilee. Paul testifies there of the many that were still alive who had seen him in person. He appears to his followers and he commissions them that as he has risen from the dead, as he has conquered death and as he has conquered hell and as he has conquered the grave and as he has promised eternal life that they would spend the rest of their days spreading through the world this truth, making disciples of all nations in Jesus' name, baptizing them who would come to him by faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all the commandments of their Savior, trusting that Christ through his Spirit would be with them unto the end. This great commission given on that day is the foundation of our lives today. This is the roots of the tree of which we are the branches of today. And the commission itself founded wholly upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his victory over sin, his victory over the grave, the fact that it is finished, that we can't, nor should we ever have to, nor could we possibly earn our way to God because the work has already been finished on the cross. It is finished. Now we'll talk more in the weeks to come. Next week about why it matters so much. The week after that about how to live in the power of the resurrection. But for this week, as we find ourselves in this account, an account that we take time to remember yearly because... This day, the day of the empty tomb, is in fact the defining day in the history of mankind. A separation from God that Jesus Christ bore as the Father poured out his judgment upon his only begotten Son. A broken creation knitted back together by the mercy of its Creator. Everlasting life secured by God in flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, but who rose again the third day, according to the will of the Father, reminding us that because he lives, so too can we. And now we step into this week, and it's a week of remembrance. It's an opportunity for us to 
by God's grace, reflect upon the so great salvation that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, there is no such memorial commanded by our Lord. In fact, the scriptures make it clear that no man should judge another in, in, in reference to keeping of a holiday or the keeping of one day above another, or as Paul would say, the eating of meat or not eating of meat, that these are not things by which we are commanded to observe. And yet we find all throughout Scripture the value of memorials and of any memorial unto which we would direct our efforts. There is no greater day in history. There is no more important event to us as the church of Jesus Christ, as those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior and are living out the regular fruit, the recipients of God's mercy. There is no greater day than the day when the tomb was found empty. And there's no greater reality than the reality of the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he was buried, our sins were remitted. That he lives again, so too might we. This is the defining moment in history. The day spoken of since the Garden of Eden. The day that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. The day where the chains of man's greatest enemies were broken, the chains of sin and the threat of death. The day that not only gives us hope for the life to come, but the day that gives us purpose in the life in which we live now. If you've never come to the point in your life where you have, where, where the resurrection of Jesus Christ has become that to you, where you have recognized your separation from God through sin, that you cannot get yourself to heaven, that you can't earn it, you can't buy it, no amount of works can get you there, no amount of church attendance can get you there, that baptism isn't going to get you there, that following a religion of, of your parents isn't going to get you there, but that Jesus died on the cross for you, that you are separated from God because of your sin. If you've never come to the point where you've realized that only what Jesus did on the cross can save you, that Jesus did the work, that he paid the price, that he didn't just pay the price, but then he rose in victory over sin and death, validating that what he said he could do, which is given to us eternal life, he can do. If you've never put your full faith and trust in that finished work, I'd encourage you to allow today to be the day where you fall at the feet of Christ and you say, I cannot save myself. I cannot get myself to heaven. I cannot cleanse my heart of sin. But that's okay because Jesus did the work already and accept that work for yourself. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you've never done that, I pray that today would be the day in preparation for our, our celebration, our rejoicing next week over the finished work of Jesus Christ, not just on the cross, but his glorious resurrection and the empty tomb. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.